Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. To me, authenticity means being uh, true to yourself, most of all. But we also really have a need to understand the rules before we break them. That was Anna Sorton. I'll be speaking with her later in the show about her newest cookbook called So For Me's. It's a collection of Turkish-inspired recipes for cookies, pastries, breads, breakfast, and meze, those wonderful little plates. But right now, it's time to check in with Raina Javeri to find out what's happening in the kitchens at Milk Street. Hi, Raina. How are you? I'm well, Chris. So this week, we're talking about caramel oranges, and I have a little story to tell you. I like my stories. I was in Rome many years ago and in March, and uh, for dessert, they had a whole peeled orange served with a caramel sauce, and that got us started on the notion of caramel and oranges. So, Chris, we went out looking for recipes, and we really liked Nigella Lawson's version that she has in her 2003 cookbook, Forever Summer. 
And what we learned actually is that more than the variety of oranges is how they're peeled. Every last bit of bitter pith needs to be trimmed off so as not to spoil the flavor. Now for this dish, we start with eight oranges and we use six to cut into rounds and arrange them in a casserole dish. And the other two, we juice. So the recipe says something about caramel. And a lot of people at home, when you say caramel, they run in the other direction screaming. So how hard is it to make the caramel sauce? This is actually an easier sauce in that it doesn't need a lot of fuss. Uh, we keep ours really simple. We um, substitute orange juice for water in this caramel sauce, which gives us a little extra punch of orange flavor. We also really like using some spice in this caramel sauce. Uh, cinnamon sticks work well. Star anise is my favorite. And you can also use six lightly crushed green cardamom pods. Now, all of this we allow to boil over a medium-high heat and then cook it until the sugar begins to color at the edges. And the cue here really is a visual cue. You want to look for the bubbles going from thin and frothy to thick and shiny. And one good tip is to take the pan off the heat as the syrup starts to darken and then swirl it around in the pan, which will let you see the color of the caramel. So I assume the color is important. Too dark and it's burned, too light and it just tastes sweet. So is this, what, mahogany, uh, banana bread? I mean, what, what's the color you want? <laughs> it's that sweet in between. We're looking for a mahogany color, which is kind of like the color of a copper penny. Something that nobody's ever seen. Nobody's anymore. ever seen before, except when they make this caramel. <laughs> and to finish this sauce, we're going to take it off the heat and then swirl in our butter right at the end to cool and stabilize it. And add so, some so now you have cold oranges or room temperature oranges. You've got a hot syrup. You just pour the hot syrup over the oranges? or You actually, this is the part, Chris, that you're going to find difficult because you have to wait a little bit. You've got to put it in the fridge and let it sit for about three hours at least until you can eat it. But then it's really good. Um, we actually like to serve this with uh, Greek yogurt, but you can also serve it with ice cream or pound cake or all of the above. All three, that's me. Thank <laughs> you very much. You're welcome, Chris. You can get our recipe for caramel oranges on our website, milkstreetradio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Now let's take your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. She's star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you? I'm great, Chris. It's Chris and Sarah here at Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Janelle uh, Moore from Danville, California. How can we help you? Well, I have a very general question about herbs. I love cooking with them, dry and fresh, but I'm feeling like I'm actually nullifying the, the, the flavors that I seek. Maybe I'm adding too much. So I was wondering if there is a prime time to add various herbs, depending on their potency or their tenderness or their firmness, and if there's a general guideline as to quantity. One thing that surprised me now that you know, I'm doing Milk Street, is that most cultures very often add handfuls. Sarah's just going to, like, throw something at me. But you see handfuls of herbs going in, and not just basil or parsley or cilantro, but dill and some other things. So, in general, at the end of cooking, you can add a lot of fresh herbs, and it'll pair nicely with meats, for example, other things that have very strong flavors. I do find, though, that some of the stronger herbs, like rosemary, for example, I actually prefer dried rosemary sometimes for long cooking because it's such a potent herb. So I think yes. very strong herbs can go in, especially dried herbs, early, but the more delicate fresh herbs towards the end. And I, 
I'm happy to throw in half a cup or a cup of fresh herbs at the end. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it overpowers the food at all. Now, Sarah's... No, no, I'm actually not disagreeing. There's some herbs that I would never use dry. And that would be the ones that have soft leaves, like dill and parsley right. and cilantro. I have used dried mint, which sort of contradicts what I'm saying. But mostly the soft leaves, chives, right. I don't like those dried. I just think they lose their wonderfulness. Mm-hmm. You know, like I agree with Chris about rosemary, and I also have used dried thyme and dried sage. In general, I add dried herbs at the beginning right. and fresh herbs at the end. Right. My question to you, do they clash? Do you put too many in of too many different kinds or just too much of an herb? I think I probably, because I love them so much, put too many in, too many different kinds. That's probably and, it. Yeah, I think that it is because, you know, I know they have the herb blends, the dried herb blends, but I generally try to use fresh herbs as much as possible you know, sometimes I'm thinking, boy, where did that flavor go? (laughs) So you've lost, yeah. Well, I think there's some herbs that played together nicely, like I'd say basil, mint, and cilantro or three that are, you know, they're always... And parsley. And parsley, yeah. And then, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. rosemary can take over. Bay leaves, especially California bay leaves, can take over. Well, I I remember a couple months ago there was a recipe from a Ukrainian cookbook for a meat stew. Mm -hmm. And at the end, she said, throw in three handfuls of herbs... (laughs) It didn't even specify. Wow. And, and that makes sense to me because you have the fresh herbs and the meat and it, it's delicious. Yeah. I mean, because as much as we love stews, it's sort of dull it and is. it's sort of fatty. Right. So you need pointing up. And generally I'll add herbs or acid, you know, like a squeeze of lemon. A lot of cultures will take an herb like cilantro and chop it with, let's say, garlic mm-hmm. or shallot. So you make a mixture of onion, yeah. shallot, and garlic with an herb and throw that in at the end of cooking as sort of a flavor enhancer. Yeah. And that also works really well, too. That sounds wonderful. It's like remolata in Italian ah. cuisine. If the Italians do it, it must be okay. It must be okay. I think that what I'm learning is just throw yes. less of the variety but bigger handfuls. Yes, yes. absolutely. I think that would be yeah. it. Another one yeah. that's very strong is fennel. fennel and tarragon. And tarragon. Tarragon yeah. are very strong. Yeah. yeah. So. Okay, thank you. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, our pleasure. Thanks. Welcome to Milk Street. What's your name? My name is Linda. Hi, Linda. How are you? I'm well, and you? Good, good. Great. So I'm an avid baker. One of the things I love to bake are pound cakes. I tried lots of different varieties of them, but sometimes when I bake the cake, and I think I have done everything the same way, I come out with a line at the bottom of the pound cake. It feels like it has slightly fallen. The height of the cake may be the same, and most of the slice of the cake is fine, but every now and then I'll get this line at the bottom that's no, a little I, more I've, dense. No, I've had the same thing. You have? Yes. We're both <laughs> we're both in, in pound cake misery. Pound cakes are the most difficult, I think, cakes to make, and the reason is everything has to be done just right. It's one of the few recipes you absolutely have to have the eggs at room temperature. If they're cold, uh, it just doesn't work as well. And the butter has to be like 65 degrees, sort of plasticine, but not soft. And you really have to cream that butter properly and take the time to do that right. I think what happens is if you do it right, everything holds together in suspension properly. If you don't, Mm -hmm. as it bakes, some of the fat comes down to the bottom of the pan to get that line. So cream properly. Make sure your butter's about 65 degrees. Make sure your eggs... By the way, you can take the eggs, put them in a small boil with some very hot water for about a minute. Small bowl. Bowl. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. With some hot water to bring it quickly. Yes, about a minute or two, and that'll bring it up to temperature. And the last thing is, take it out of the oven, 
put the timer on for 20 minutes and then make sure you take the pound cake out of the pan and put it on a cooling rack. I'm going to throw one other thing in there. If you um, beat the butter and the sugar and the eggs, that liquid mixture, before you add the flour, if you beat them on high speed, you can actually overcream it. Yes, that's true. So you really need to keep your speed at medium and don't overdo it. I mean, you're right. It does have to get light and fluffy and all that, but don't keep going. Don't exceed the speed limit. Don't exceed. So medium speed is really key. That's good. And then after you add the flour, be very gentle with the mixing because, again, if you get, just like you said, it sounds like it fell and it separates out a little bit, perhaps because the butter got a little too soft when you were doing the beating at high speed. So medium speed with the butter, sugar, and eggs. And once you add the flour, mix very gently. I put it on low speed or do it by hand for 10 seconds. The second reason with the flour, of course, is you don't want to develop the gluten. But also you don't want to develop too much volume so that then it falls. Well, you know, we were in London six months ago with Claire Patak of the Violet Bakery. And she said to me, undermix your batters. You can even see flour in the batter, but during baking, it'll all come together. Most people overmix and they lose height during the mixing. Oh, so it doesn't have to look fully incorporated. The flour. The flour. You yeah. can still see some flour in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate all those comments. I'll yeah. try it again. And let us know how, how, how it, it comes it, out. It, by the way, do you use any leavener baking powder in this recipe or not? No, not in well, this one. I would put in half a teaspoon of baking powder. See what happens. I think that right. might help. And I'll remember to keep your speed medium. I think yeah. that's pretty key, too. Will do. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'll Thanks for calling. Time. Take care. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, give us a ring anytime. That's 1 8554 Bowtie. 1 8554 Bowtie. You can also email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Hi there, this is Lynn Lano. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Downingtown, Pennsylvania. Nice. Well, what can we help you with? I love duck, and I prefer roasted duck that's been roasted in the oven for a long time as opposed to seared duck breast, which a lot of restaurants have. My question is, why is it okay to serve rare duck, but it's not okay to serve rare chicken breast? That is the best question ever. It boggles my mind. Me too. It's one of those things like you'll never go to sleep if you start thinking about it at bedtime. (laughs) Um, I think the answer is because poultry, chicken, is raised in huge farms. And the sanitation issues are dicey. And so the potential for contamination with chicken is relatively high in Turkey. Ducks are raised in much smaller numbers and the potential health risk is lower. So technically, if you talk to the USDA, they'll say you have to cook duck to the same temperature as chicken, which is 160 or above. Oh, I see. So technically, you should cook duck. But the risk factor, I think, is much lower. And also, it's a different kind of meat. It's really a red meat. And it's, Although the USDA okay. would still say it's poultry. But. The USDA says cook everything to death. Right. Under right. all conditions. Right. Yes. They, they don't want to get sued. Incinerated. I would be perfectly right. happy with medium rare, 135 to 140. Me too. But, you know. Okay. You're taking a slight you're risk. You're taking a slight risk, but nothing like turkey no, or chicken. No, the last time I read, I think it was Consumer Reports, they said something like 80% of all chicken in Turkey is contaminated with either salmonella or campybalactor. So you have 80%. to. I know. Depressing. 
Um, is, is it cocktail yeah. hour yet? Oh, that was, <laughs> no, I'm really depressed. So that's the one thing. I'm a nutcase about chicken and turkey. I have another thing. Years ago, I did a recipe for duck and goose. I actually simmered them in water for a while. A whole duck or a whole goose? A whole duck for like 20 minutes or yes. 30 minutes to reduce some of that layer of fat right, on the skin. Right, you can't get and, it out. And then roast it. Julia Child used to do that too. Oh. The thing about a duck breast is because you put it skin side down right next to the heat, right in the skillet. Where the fat is right. is right under the skin. But when you're roasting something, it's circulating hot air, so right. you can't get as much right. fat out. It's messy. It's a little difficult to simmer the duck or the goose first, but you're absolutely right. You'll get some of that fat out. So you can end up with a crispy skin, which to me is the goal. Well, why is it always what I thought I invented something? Someone says... Well, actually, Julia Child. She's been doing that for years. There's nothing I'm new. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I stole it. But you know that there really is nothing new, there except is nothing. occasionally there is. So how can duck... you be Julia anyway? Yeah, that's really. true. That's how true. can you? How it's can like, you? how could you be Abe Lincoln? Yeah, like, right. There's only one of them. Yeah, that's exactly um, right. That's true. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you so very much. Our pleasure. Thanks. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. After the break, I speak to chef and restaurateur Anna Sorton about her newest cookbook, Sofra Mies, vibrant Middle Eastern recipes from Sofra Bakery and Cafe. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash post. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to chat with Anna Sorton. She's the chef proprietor at three Boston-area restaurants, Sofra Bakery, Oleana, and Sarma. Now, I've known Anna for many years. She is lovely and modest. She's innovative. And she was also an inspiration for the creation of Milk Street. Her food, based on the principles of Turkish cooking, is a revelation of spices, of complexity, but also of simple pleasures. I started by asking her a little bit about her culinary background. So uh, I've been to your restaurants many times. Uh, we've talked a few times. You taught me a lot, actually, about Turkish food and Middle Eastern food. Uh, in fact, one of the reasons I started Mill Street was you, because I was so excited about the spices and the different ways of thinking about food. Oh, that's wonderful. So let's start with your beginnings. You actually went to La Varenne, which seems an odd thing to do. I did. I went when I was 19. I was pretty determined to go to cooking school in France when I was about 16. I decided that's what I was going to do. So 
Instead of going to college, I spent um, a couple of years going to a really tiny um, private French school where um, I just I took French five days a week for two years until I could get into the stagiaire or apprenticeship program that Lavarin had. The Turkey's uh, an interesting culture. Uh, added Turk in the early 20th century, you sort of brought them more into the 20th century. It's a mixed culture, I guess, in some ways. Is the food also mixed or not? Yeah, I feel like uh, the more the more I go and study and, and learn, the more I realize I have so much more to learn, which is the great beauty, I think, of life. But Turkey's such a melting pot with so many different influences. The Ottoman Empire had an enormous influence on the sophistication and labor-intensive dishes that uh, exist there. But, you know, the the Black Sea area really influ- – there's Greek influence, there's uh, Arab influence, there's so much. Armenians had such a big play in the, the role of cuisine um, – and each region has its specialty, just like any anywhere else in, in the European countries as well. But the Ottoman Empire brought this sort of finesse, I guess, and, and labor um, and skill to the cuisine. Uh, Meze. So, uh, you know, a lot of books about Turkish cooking talk about you might have eight or 10 or 12 meze available sometimes. I assume that doesn't still happen. Uh, it happened because of what? what? What was the background to the idea of having lots of small plates? Yeah, there's sort of a social aspect of having a lot of small plates and also this uh, this generosity of variety and this um, generosity of feasting and um, being able to taste many different things and also to be able to share small tastes of many things with you know with your friends and i like to think of it it's it's almost like the the precursor to the uh the tasting menu only it's just done all at once <laughs> instead of you know over the course of 4 hours one by one you you're still sitting at the table maybe for just as long but you're you know you're basically having very small tastes of many different things most of which are vegetable driven, but also could have a little cheese or a little fish in them. So it's a way to taste many different things over a long period of time with friends. Uh, your new book, So For Me's, uh, yeah. just came out. Uh, tell me about your book. So it it was, I wrote it with my business partner, Mora, who is the pastry wizard of all, all places. Uh, she's incredible. And it's uh, it's really the story about the two of us and how we how we deliver the and how we create this you know our style of um, Mediterranean Middle Eastern food and about how we've worked together because she and I have have worked together for about twenty years and this project was was really to tell this story about Sofra and could, could you describe Sofra Bakery for people who are not familiar with it because it's it's pretty unusual. It's uh, Sofra is really uh, a tiny little place on the corner uh, near the Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, and um, we um, our mission when we opened it was to expose uh, a different style of Mediterranean food than people were familiar with in in Boston, and we thought we had such a very clear idea that we were going to do these 
really thin stuffed flatbreads and have a meze bar and introduce um, Middle Eastern styles of pastries, particularly Turkish influenced, uh, little by little, like so that, you know, we'd put some chocolate chunk cookies there to sort of lure people um, <laughs> to try something different. We'd put it right next to a kunafe or something. <laughs> and um, and we, we, we built people's trust slowly. But, you know, when we opened it, it was uh, a little bit – it was a little frightening because it was so clear in our minds what we were doing. But no one else had any idea what the hell anything was. So we spent a long time, you know, standing in line with people and um, and trying to, you know, sort of walk them through the menu and show them things. So it took us a, a lot of perseverance and um, – and communication to finally uh, get it to take off. <laughs> we almost gave up at a certain point, but uh, I gratefully didn't and turned it turned it into a, a great success. So desserts, uh, my sense is throughout the Middle East, sweets are eaten sort of in the late afternoon as a pick-me-up more than after a, a meal. Is that true or is that not true in Turkey? In, in Turkey, yes and no. I mean, they have certain uh, styles of dessert, I think, that are eaten in the afternoon or even in the morning. And then they have others that are very much for after dinner. They have something called kunafe, which is very traditional to have it at restaurants at the end of the meal. And it's a, it's a very, very thin pastry that's sandwiched with a sweet cheese. And it's almost like eating um, – and it's soaked in syrup. And it's got a crushed phyllo called karaif. It's not actually phyllo, but it looks like crushed phyllo. It looks like uh, shredded wheat almost. And very thin, very crispy, and then uh, soaked in syrup. So when you cut into it, it's very stretchy and warm like a, mm. like a grilled cheese sandwich would be, something that was really pressed, but it's sweet. Um, and it's absolutely magnificent. And they also have another one uh, called katmare, which is like pan-fried pistachio ravioli dusted with um, mm. powdered sugar. Delicious. Yeah. My favorite quote from you of all time was, it's the sitar stupid, <laughs> uh, which is a spice blend. C- could you just talk about sitar and, you know, a few other spice blends or Aleppo pepper, things that sumac, what are four or five spice blends or spices that are really crucial to your cooking? I think I would choose... The blend bahara, which mm-hmm. is um, – it means many different things. And some of these words are confusing because they have double meanings. But bahara essentially means spice. So if you walk through a, a spice market, you'll see the word bahara everywhere. But it also means a blend of spices. And it can vary so much because bahara is a, a blend that you choose for anything and everything. So in other words, if you were to come to my house on a winter day and I was braising a lamb shank – my bahara would be different than if you came to my house in the summertime and I was grilling a leg of lamb. So bahara can range from seven to, you know, 14 different spices depending on what you're cooking. We make sort of a medium one that's a really nice balance. It's got seven different spices in it. Spices like cumin, dried mint, coriander, marash pepper, or we call it marash even though it's better known as Aleppo pepper. Could you explain Aleppo pepper, what it tastes like? So Aleppo pepper is really a sweet, dried chili flake that doesn't have a lot of heat to it. It has a little bit. It's very oily and vegetal. 
But it's um, it's confused now because it's not actually from Aleppo anymore because of the crisis in Syria. And the same chili or similar chili is grown in southeastern Turkey. And uh, that's more of what we're getting these days. But it's hard to change that name because it became popular as, as Aleppo pepper. In uh, one of your earlier books, you have a recipe for four-hour lamb or spoon lamb, I think it's called. Mm, yeah. Uh, and the idea of cooking meat a very, very long time until it's very soft is something that I don't think we do very much here. Uh, could you just talk about that as a as a tradition, a culinary tradition in the Middle East? Yeah, I think that, you know, that's sort of the 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 time it takes. It's so easy. You can just forget about it in the oven. Um, but it does, you have to be around the house to be, you know, for a few hours to be able to check on it. But along, what I love about the style of braising in uh, a country like Turkey is that they, we, we go back to the balance. You take a, a fattier piece of lamb, like a shank that has a lot of fat marbled throughout it, the long, slow cooking of it renders the fat and makes, and the meat becomes very tender. So they would add at the end something acidic like pomegranate molasses, which is also very rich, but very acidic. So it sort of cuts through that heaviness of the meat. Finally, let's end with the obvious hummus. I mean, for you, you probably just can't eat most hummus because the real thing is so different. What? Why is really great hummus, let's say in Turkey, so great? And so much of it you get here is not. That is such a good question because um, what it, and this is just me, this is what it really comes down to for me personally is it's the oil. And I think if, you know, I'm such a, I'm so hyper aware of the ingredients that if I'm taking a, I can't even imagine eating a huge spoonful of genetically modified canola oil or, or, you know, just really cheap, bad oil. And when you're putting a lot of oil into something like there is a lot of olive oil in a hummus and that makes it really creamy and really rich. And what's amazing about the dish hummus too, is that when you combine the chickpeas and the tahini together, you have a, a complete protein. So it's not just rich, but it's filling um, but it's rich in a good way with really good oil. And it, it was made for olive oil and made for really, really good extra virgin olive oil. So when you skimp on the olive oil and you try to use a lesser expensive or not so good quality oil in, in its place, it changes everything. So g give me a moment when you're in a, let's say, a small town in Turkey, uh, you're cooking with someone, you're at someone's home. Was there a moment for you when you just went, okay, this is, I'm home now. This is mm -hmm. where I belong. I feel like I've had many, many moments, especially with friends when I've been cooking there. Um, I think the very first time I went to Turkey, I was invited to go study with a couple of women. One lived in the southeast of Turkey in a small town called Gaziantep. Uh, her name was Ifer, and she organized a potluck where they all prepared a dish that was really special to them, very practiced and um, very much uh, representative of their town. And I tasted 30 of these dishes that day, and I didn't know what any of them were. I had never tasted anything like them before. 
So I didn't necessarily feel like I had come home. But what I did know was that I wanted to understand what was behind them, that this was a really interesting way of cooking and that I really needed to know more. And I really wanted to bring some of that to Boston. And so that was really a really big turning point for me. And when I opened Oleana, that was one of, you know, that stands out as a, as a stellar moment to when I, I really got hooked. That was Anna Sorton, chef owner of Sofra and Oleana in Boston. The saying about World War II veterans was, how can you keep them down on the farm after seeing gay Paris? Well, there's some truth to that when it comes to Anna Sorton. She introduced me to a world of spices, a world of thinking about balance and contrast from fats and acidity to sweet and sour to soft and crunchy. Thanks to Anna, I think of myself as a novice cook. The world has much to teach us about the possibilities in the kitchen. Or we could just keep it simple and say that a glass of wine and a few meze, hummus and tamarind beef maybe, can just change your life. I know, because it changed mine. You're listening to Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. Right now it's time to check in with our wine expert, Stephen Muse. This week, winemakers who are saving obscure and eccentric varietals. Stephen, how are you? Good, Chris. You, you're smiling, which you often do, which means I'm in trouble because you're about to surprise me with something or other. No, this smile is about the fact that we're going to taste some really interesting wine today from three really interesting producers. And each of them is a story. And I'm, I would argue it's more than a story. It's really a romance. You're in love or the winemakers <laughs> in love? Who's uh, in the, love right The here? winemakers are in love okay. with a grape, and I'm in love with their wine. It's okay. something like that. You know, the thing today is when you go into a restaurant, I know you know this very well because I think, you know, you find it terribly annoying when the waiters want to tell you every little thing about where the chicken came from and how he slept last oh, yeah. night. Annoying and, is a you good know, description. Right. Well, the same thing is happening in the world of wine. People really want to know the where, what, why, and when of everything that they drink, and they're not really happy when they leave the wine corner with a bottle of wine from us unless they have a little story to take along with it. So okay. I've got three wines, I've got three terrific stories, and we're going to talk about them. Let me drink and taste the first story. Okay. It's a white wine you've got there, Chris. Hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. Tasty, huh? It's tasty, but it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Like the story that you're about to tell. <laughs> no, it has a... It starts out smooth and kind of fruity, but it has a little mineral, you know, there's, there's yeah. structure to it underneath yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, it's very interesting. I, I like it. I mean, interesting is usually a bad word. I mean, I, I like now, it. I, th I yeah, think I you're like going to find all of these wines of that character because each of these wines is made from what has historically been an obscure and rather eccentric grape variety. So what you tasted in this first wine is a grape called Grichetto. It's one of these very ancient uh, wines that we find in central Italy. This one is made in Lazio, so it's the area around Rome. And it's made by a winemaker called Sergio Motora. He's been making wine there since the 1960s. And he is the world's acknowledged master of Grichetto. So all of the stories that we're going to tell today have to do with a winemaker who, in each case, decades ago, fell in love with a rather obscure, slightly eccentric grape that nobody else was paying any attention to, and over the years has made something wonderful. That, that was wonderful. No, yep. Wine number two is? Wine number two, very exotic stuff. Man, I don't know. This is, um, 
weird, exotic, <laughs> lovely. It's, uh, it's funny that you say that because, you know, I love to it write. It has a, a funny, a really interesting, um, um, I, I don't know the word. It's, yeah. it's something totally unexpected in wine. You know, I love to write in the bottles in the wine corner. And often on this bottle I have these words written, Timorasso is weirdly delicious. Yeah, it's exactly. So, <laughs> weird was the right word. Right, okay. So the grape variety here is Timorasso. The wine is made in the southern part of the Piedmont, in the Tortona Hills. The winemaker is a guy named Walter Massa. And same kind of story. The Timorasso was a grape variety that was hyper-local in this area. And over the years, just sort of began to wither away. People stopped paying attention to it. He started making wine there in the 1980s. He loved this grape. He's really dedicated his career to reviving it, to increasing the number of uh, vineyards that are planted, and uh, to finding new ways to deal with it from a technical point of view, from a craft point of view, to really bring out all its flavor. And that's something. It's well, kind it of has a... I don't know if it's avocado, but it's got some kind of vegetal thing that's mm -hmm. really interesting. It's mm -hmm. kind of sweet, but it's, it, it's a yeah. really, really interesting Sort wine. of exotic flowers, yeah. spice. Yeah. 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 yeah it, it's, it's just super. It's, it's super. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now on to a red. So, yeah, I'm going to taste the red here. That's interesting. It's front-loaded. The finish is very light, mm -hmm. but the initial taste is mm -hmm. a little more spectacular, but yeah. it, it doesn't give you that really harsh tannin depth to mm -hmm. it. Uh, so it's surprising because you, th you think it's going to hit you over the head and it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. Uh, this is Terrell de Go. The grape variety is Terrell de Go. It's from Elisabetta Foradori. She's up in the uh, northeast corner of Italy, in Trentino, in the Alto Adige area. Uh, again, she's been working with this grape for about 30 years. She inherited a family property. She's done a lot of work with it. Now, this is part of the story here is one that we encounter in more than one place in the wine world, when at the end of the 19th century, when the phylloxera infestation mm -hmm. wiped vineyards out, it gave winemakers uh, the opportunity to replant, sort of wholesale. And when they did that, this is the moment when some of these more commercial kinds of varieties replaced more traditional indigenous varietals. And that was the case with Terrell de She had some vines on the property. She loved it. She's been working with it for years. The wine has a kind of tannic grip to it. It's lightish, but it has a kind of force and power mm -hmm. to it. Wonderful with food. I, I, I just love the wine, and our clientele loves it too. So, three wines, three winemakers, three long-time romances, and wonderful stuff for us to drink. So, very quickly, the three wines were? Okay, the Grichetto from Sergio Motora, the white. The Timorasso from Walter Massa, also a white and the Terrell de Go from Elisabetta Foradori, the red. Stephen, you're a romantic guy with a story. Thank you. <laughs> that was wine expert Stephen Muse. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. After the break, Vietnamese cookbook writer Andrea Nguyen talks about Tuesday night suppers. What would she cook if she had half an hour or less? 
This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Mill Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com slash tours. That's 177milkstreet.com slash tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to take some calls with Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready to go? I am ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, this is Judy from Ypsilanti, Michigan. How are you? Oh, Ypsilanti. Yay. What? 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 What, <laughs> do I, what don't I know? I went. I was in Ann Arbor, Michigan for five years, so oh. I know about Ypsilanti. Yeah, it's just a little ways up the road. That is correct. So I should just sit this call out because no, you guys no, are... it's all right. Okay. It's all right. I'll start asking her okay. about bars in Ann Arbor. <laughs> How can we help you? Well, Mr. Kimball, I want to thank you for taking my question. Pleasure. I'd like to know when I use cornstarch as a thickener and use it for gravies and sauces, and then the next day when I try to reheat it, it comes in a jellied form. It doesn't really smooth out again. And the same thing when I'm doing macaroni and cheese. I lose that creaminess, end up with a hard lump on my plate. I was hoping you could give me some suggestions what I could do. How are you reheating? Microwave. I would put it in a saucepan, like the mac and cheese. I would add a little milk to it, maybe, and very low heat and stir, and the gel will... The thing about cornstarch gels or any gels is when you heat them, they will return to liquid form. So I guess in the microwave... For it's some, not as gentle. It, it's a different way yeah, of heating. If you just do it uh, in a saucepan, it will melt. So I have to do it the hard way and not do it the easy way? <laughs> I don't use a microwave, so I don't understand why. Maybe you didn't microwave it enough, but I would think it's – I don't understand. Why wouldn't it work in a microwave? I'm, oh, I don't know. Oh. I'm not – but believe me, I just got a microwave to heat coffee, so right. I'm a virgin at microwaves also. And melting chocolate. Yeah, and That's melting for, chocolate yeah. and melting butter. I just think you have really the reason actually I didn't get a microwave is because I want to have more control over my food. And you know, when you put something in a microwave and you close the door and press a button, you can't smell it, you can't see it, you can't touch it. Normally I cook on the stove and when I make the recipes and I have the leftovers and it's the leftovers that I occasionally heat through the microwave. But I agree with you on the microwave. I normally only use it for reheating coffee and, as you say, melting uh, chocolate, chocolate, which I'm planning to do soon. <laughs> oh, we, we applaud that decision. Yes. But, but cornstarch as a thickener is more finicky than flour. Yeah. Because cornstarch is pure starch. Flour has proteins and other things in it. So it's a sturdier thickener. It may not come out as well as it was in the original, but the stovetop is a better way to reheat it. Ah, that's what I will do in the future. Instead of going the easy way, I will actually work a little harder and use the stove. It's not that. <laughs> no, it's not that hard. I wonder if there's something about how the microwave works that doesn't work well with reheating a gel. Yeah. We should go check that yeah. out. Yeah, you need to get your science I need guy. to get my science guy to talk yeah. about that. Where is that science guy? I know it guy? doesn't work for a lot of foods. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's okay. where we like to live at Milk Street on the stovetop. So. Thanks, Judy. I appreciate you. Thanks help. for calling. Thank you. Yeah, take care. It's Chris and Sarah from Milk Street. Who's calling? Oh, this is Heidi from Curzay, Virginia. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How can we help you? I was enjoying your first issue of the magazine, and I saw that salmon recipe where you wrap it in aluminum foil. Uh-huh. I was examining that recipe, 
and could not quite figure out why we couldn't just cook it in the skillet with the lid on to steam it instead of going through the effort of those foil packs. Well, the recipe for people who don't know it is this sort of en papillote, but we're using aluminum foil. So you put the fillets, four fillets, in aluminum foil and put them in a skillet. And the benefit there is that the foil conducts heat. So the bottom of the fillets actually brown nicely, but you also get gentle cooking. I think you could do that, but the papillote, the foil pack, is much smaller, and you'll end up with more gentle cooking. There'll be more steam going on. So you probably would end up with something a little drier if you used a host skillet. There's another technique. You could take the salmon fillets and put some parsley stems in the pan, a little bit of white wine, and some lemon slices, and put this salmon on top of that and put the top on for about 11 minutes. That would be okay. almost more like the parchment, though, because you wouldn't yeah. get the sear. Right. You um, wouldn't get the sear, but it's about searing. Fish en papillote, loosely translated, is fish in a bag, and it's a French thing. And they usually, Sounds better, though. Yeah, <laughs> en papillote sounds so elegant. But when they do it in parchment, and this is why I think you all came up with this idea to use aluminum foil, it just sort of steams and creates right. this sauce, whereas when you do it in a foil, you can get crispy, you know, get some... My artifacts on the salmon. I like your idea because it seems like less work, but when you have it in a skillet with a lid, you're still going to lose some of the liquid that the salmon gives off. And what's great about doing it in a package, whether it's parchment and you don't brown it or it's foil and you do, is the juices can go nowhere. They're trapped. So whatever else you put in that package, whether it be butter or chilies or citrus or anything, is going to stay right in there and mingle with the juices from the salmon. So when you open up the package, you have salmon and sauce. So that's the advantage because you probably have some sauce if you did it the way you just suggested with a lid, but it wouldn't be as juicy and it wouldn't be as saucy. No, I have to bring Sarah around with me all the time because you explain me better than I can. That was much better than my answer. <laughs> no. <laughs> that was I, really good. All I said was fish in a bag. That's, that's all. That's true. Fish in a bag. Fish in a bag. Yeah. They would be similar, but you get a little more flavor and juiciness by actually using the foil packet. A, a lot more because those juices will just disappear in the skillet. They will. Because the, the top's not a perfect Because the skillet is larger than the fish. Right. Whereas in a foil package, the foil's only as large as the fish. So the juices come out and stay in the foil. Plus, there's another reason. The foil puffs up and it looks cool. Yeah. Cooking is all about it looking cool. By the way, it's not hard to do. It only takes a couple minutes. It's very simple. Okay. Well, I will try the foil packets then. Good. Thank you. Thanks, you guys. Yeah, thanks for calling. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you'd like us to answer your cooking questions, give us a call, 1-855-4-BOWTIE. That is 1-855-4-BOWTIE. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. You can find our shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and also at our own site, MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do I have on the line? Hi, this is Lauren. I'm calling from Tampa Bay. How nice. Well, what is your question? Okay, my question is about buttermilk biscuits. We make the same buttermilk biscuits that you, Chris, that you make every weekend. We don't quite make them every weekend, but we make them a lot, and everyone loves them. And what everybody loves about them is this crispy exterior, especially if you do the bacon fat and the cast iron skillet. But sometimes I personally want like a big, soft, melt-in-your-mouth biscuit all around. How can I get a softer biscuit? Well, first of all, yeah, I'd bake it on a baking sheet in a 400-degree, 425 oven for about 12 minutes. But the basic recipe is two cups of flour and seven tablespoons of fat, butter or Crisco, whatever. 
uh, I'd increase the fat. The more fat you have, the softer it'll be, just like with people. So uh, you go up from seven <laughs> tablespoons to 10 or 11 or 12 and cut more fat into the flour and the food processor to start with. And then the second thing is I'd make them a little wetter. A wetter biscuit will probably turn out a little softer. So bake it on a baking sheet, increase the fat by three or four tablespoons, and make sure you have a pretty wet batter. Those three things okay. really ought to do it. We also, we're working now on a recipe for whipped cream biscuits. You actually whip the cream in your recipe, yes. right? Yeah. I have one which right. is just a cream biscuit, which is what James Beard James used, Beer. used yeah. to do. When you're making a biscuit, you can have all sorts of fats and all sorts of liquids. But in the cream biscuit, his cream biscuit that we adapted at Gourmet when I worked there, there's only four ingredients. There's flour, right. baking powder, cream, and salt. In that recipe, the heavy cream, it has to be heavy cream, does double duty as the fat and right. the liquid. Those are actually very tender biscuits. And okay. uh, But it sounds like you want to stick with the buttermilk. But if you like the sound of that, add a little extra cream, just a little bit, a couple tablespoons, and then brush the top with melted that's butter. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. And, uh, when they come out. Well, hey, that's a thought, too. Yeah, because when they come out, <laughs> the melted butter softens the outer that's crust. That's a good idea. Yeah. Okay. So then you've got, geez, I'm getting hungry, aren't you? I love biscuits. Uh, oh, that <laughs> sounds that's my so favorite. Good. Okay. Am I putting them on the baking sheet separate? Yes. Or do I kind of mash them together to keep the insides soft? <gasps> What I do instead is I mix it and I make a, a round, like you're making pie dough, a round. And then you cut it into yep. wedges like you're making scones or something. And then you just pull them apart. That's a good idea. And then that way you don't have to re-roll and re-roll, which also makes a tough biscuit because you're working but, the gluten but she, in the she flour. She has a point, though, you know, because Southern Biscuits we did years ago, you bake them in a baking tin around, and they were all touching. And so oh, the, the, the sides are very soft. That's a great idea. And you pull them apart. So I think... But, I think but you don't need a tin. You could still do it freeform, but you're right. Don't cut them. Well, or score them, but don't cut I, them. I use a baking pan because then you can fit them in, and, and the outside doesn't get overcooked either. So that if you want a really soft exterior on the sides, bake them together in a cake pan, essentially. Right, right. Yeah, that would work. Right. And then brush them with butter yes. when you yeah. take them out. When they come the out. Top yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, but I was wondering, do I cover them at all when I'm baking them? No. no. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you'd like us to answer your cooking questions, give us a call, one 855 bowtie You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Mill Street Basic is how to use a very classic spice mixture in the Middle East called zatar. It's a mixture of thyme and sesame seeds, sumac, salt, also cumin. Try adding it to a thick Greek yogurt for a simple dip. It's great sprinkled over fried or scrambled eggs on sautéed chicken, lamb chops, fish, or matched with goat cheese and olive oil smeared across a baguette or maybe a warm pita. As Anna Sorton likes to say, quote, it's the Zatar stupid, which simply means that you can put Zatar on almost anything. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. We often ask our guests to share with us simple Tuesday night suppers. This week, we speak to Andrea Nguyen. She's the author of Into the Vietnamese Kitchen, Asian Dumplings, Asian Tofu, and of course, the Bon Mi Handbook. Hi, Andrea. How are you? Good. How are you doing, Chris? Good. So how do you think about cooking? For example, it's Tuesday night, and you have an hour, 45 minutes to, th to think about throwing something together. How do you think about that, and how is that different than how I might think about it with a New England background? Sure. So let's say I wanted to put together a very, you know, simple, like, Vietnamese meal, and I had one hour. 
my husband and I, we live within like walking distance of four markets. And so we'd go to the market and I'd buy like some chicken thighs. And I like them with the bone in because I just think that there's more flavor. And then maybe like a vegetable to stir fry. So I go home with those ingredients and I debone the chicken and I would I would save those the, the bones from the legs and I would make a little like quick broth with that for a soup because a, a traditional Vietnamese meal always starts out with a quick soup. And the, and the soup broth is not like stock that you have to have sitting around. You can just use water. And then you throw a bunch of vegetables in there, um, a leafy green, for example. And then maybe if you've got some tofu or egg, yes. But of course, you know, you fish out the bones. And then the um, the meat left over, you know, that remains from having boned the chicken legs, I would just do a very simple marinade that I picked up from one of my first trips to Hanoi, which has like a little sugar, pepper, salt, fish sauce, and a little lime juice and a little oil. Mm. And... Then my husband goes and grills that. You know, I'd stir fry a vegetable. If there's leftover rice from the night before, we just reheat that. So that's how it gets done in one hour. Um, could you just talk about water? Because it, it seems to me now people don't understand water is actually an ingredient. I know. And you use good water, you know, water that um, you like to drink. And, in you know, when I make pho, I use water that is drinking water. We have a, a fil- filtration system in the house. So I use that water. And I think about that water. You know, in the Japanese, when they make ramen, they think about the water that they put in there. Right. And um, the thing is that in these soups that I was talking about, like you start it off with a saute of um, onion that's done over moderate heat to coax out, you know, flavor and sweetness. And then you would um, add your water, salt, fish sauce, and, you know, if you've got your protein, um, let's say even if you had like a tiny lump of, you know, a lime-sized lump of ground pork, you could add it to there. And, or some bones, like I mentioned with those chicken bones, you can add it to there. And then you let it simmer. And what Vietnamese people do that I think is really genius is that then there's a ton of vegetables put in. So you could use a leafy green, you know, um, mustard green is one of my favorites, or watercress. And you add that and let it cook, and that is flavoring your water to create a lovely broth. And it's very simple. Uh, Thank you, Andrew. Really. Well, thank you for inviting me, Chris. That was Vietnamese cookbook writer Andrew Nguyen. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. This week I spoke to Anna Sorton, and I did have a final thought. You know, passion, unless it refers to romance, seems to be a lost art. Sure, the occasional artist is passionate, or actors, actresses, or reporters, and maybe we should add a comedian or two and political activists as well. But what about the rest of us? What are we passionate about? Is it money? Is it success? Maybe fame? When one is passionate about something intimate, small even, it really makes the passion noble and rich. Anna Sorton is passionate about the cooking of turkey. Maybe that's more than enough for one life. Thanks for listening to Mill Street Radio. We'll see you next week. You can listen to our weekly shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and also on our very own website, that's MilkStreetRadio.com, where you can also download each week's recipe.
Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugarts. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.